welcome to the Gorilla Craft podcast, where we will be examining the state of craftivism throughout the world, talking to crafters, stitchers, knitters, quilters, in short, makers with an idea of using their craft to make a change and letting their opinions show through their yarns. I am Frida Arnqvist Engström. I am a journalist calling from Stockholm, Sweden. The common thread in this podcast is to talk to crafters who want to make a difference within themselves and in the crafted community. I am thrilled about your response to my first episode. Thank you very much for listening. And I'm also really glad that you're sharing my belief that craft and activism are tools to make a change in the world. Now let's go talk to some guerrilla crafters out there. Uh, and I think perhaps what's really powerful in the way that craftivism operates is that it physically makes material people's voices, their opinions, their their concerns, all the things that they're passionate about. It's a way to kind of like make very tangible um, what it is they're trying to say. The second guest of this podcast is Tal Fitzpatrick. The Israeli-born artist with a PhD in craftivism now lives in Melbourne, where she is working with socially engaged art, craft and activism, often together with grassroots organizations and within community development. We talked through the internet a few months back and got to discuss her interest in using the power of craft to make a social change, and as she's describing it, to get people to engage in the hands-on practice of democracy. She's using craftivism as a method of making that change and is also using social media as an effective tool for that participation. In this episode, we are mentioning the project the UDHR Quilt, a project that gathered crafters globally to interpret the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in a powerful way, as well as the ongoing project the COVID-19 Quilt as a way of gathering thoughts and stories through craft in these pandemic times. Now, here is Tal Fitzpatrick. <laughs> Hi, Tal. It's so nice talking to you. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, all things considered. Melbourne is probably doing the worst in the entire country, so things are feeling a bit tense here still. But compared to the rest of the world, we're, um, we've been really lucky. Are you living in Melbourne? I was just going to say, I was born in Israel and I moved with my family to Australia when I was eight years old. Um, and I grew up on the Gold Coast and then moved to Melbourne to do my PhD, which was about seven years ago now when I moved here. Um, Starting by saying that, but I'm 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 a bit curious about the uh, the past few months and how, how, how it has affected uh, your work or your end of the world. Is, could you elaborate a little bit about? It's hard to know where to start. So yeah, it was pretty frightening the first couple of weeks in particular. Um, we were kind of preparing for the worst um, for what we'd been seeing in other countries like in Italy at the time, which looked really scary. So I run a lot of like uh, participatory workshops and I travel around quite a bit to give um, talks and stuff and all of that was cancelled. So it was really scary the first few weeks. Um, I was really lucky in that I was able to adapt quite a few of my projects to work in kind of like a digital remote way um kind of settled into a new normal 
um, for now. But yeah, it's all quite up in the air still. Yeah, it took us all by surprise, all the projects and exhibitions and, and works we needed to cancel, right? I think uh, the power of craft is often to gather around physically and, and all of a sudden we have not been able to do that. Yeah, but I think we're really lucky in that there is an amazing, um, quite vibrant craft community online across different platforms from Facebook to Instagram um, to kind of websites and blogs and that's there's like a really long precedence of that um so i think we're quite a robust so far as our capacity to adapt to this kind of form of digital engagement in this podcast i'm curious to get to know more about the state of craftivism throughout the world and um i would like to know more about your daily work on 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 the subject but first How did you get into uh, the craft and activism and or and then uh, into the fields? Could you just tell me more about your background before we start going into more of your works? Uh, medium length version of this story is I did an arts degree straight after high school uh, and an honors, and kind of through that I decided that I wanted to actually not go into arts as a professional but move towards the nonprofit sector as a um, way to kind of quote-unquote be more helpful. <laughs> um, and I ended up working in the nonprofit sector um, Uh, for an organization called Volunteer in Queensland for a number of years full-time. And as part of that project, I was lucky enough to go around and do leadership development in disaster-affected communities across Queensland after we had the floods here and interstate after some fires. And I also got to travel to Christchurch after they had their earthquakes and Sendai in Japan after the tsunami struck. Um, and as part of these workshops, I realized that everywhere I went, art was a really integral part of people's recovery and um, resilience building. And that kind of sparked my interest back up in looking at how I reincorporate my own arts practice into this kind of work that I do, which is why I went back to do a PhD. Um, And I applied to do that at the Victorian College of Arts here in Melbourne because they had this research centre. I wanted to be part of the Centre for Cultural Partnerships because they um, were really interested in social practice and um, artistic processes that were multidisciplinary and involved um, non-artist participation. Mm. Uh, and very early in my research, I came across Betsy Greer's book, Um, I think you had Betsy Greer on in the last episode. So, yeah, I, I found her book and read about the term craftivism and had that kind of like, I finally know what I want to be when I grow up moment. And I kind of haven't looked back since. And do you use the term craftivism in your work? The socially engaged way of work is very well combined with craftivism, don't you think? Yeah, I certainly do. So in a in like a broader sense I see myself just as an artist but to be more specific I am a socially engaged artist who works as a craftivist um, and my research was about um, the field of craftivism and looking at expanding our understandings of it as not just being a form of activism and advocacy but actually trying to reposition it as also a way of engaging in 
active citizenship um, because I think a lot of what people who participate in craftivism do is actually about um, kind of building their own sense of agency um, as a citizen. And I think there's some criticism of craftivism for not being uh, perhaps the most efficient way to go about activism. And I think that is because part of it is really people exploring how they can uh, be part of the everyday practice of democracy. Hmm. But do, do you find, do you get uh, close to those questions? Do you, do you, when you, when you are in your projects and do you find it um, easy to talk about the, the, those issues when, when using the craftivist method? Uh, I also, I, I always uh, try and engage critically and think about the kind of multiple levels that my projects work on so far as um, how effective they are in creating change. Mm. Um, so I guess using an example would be helpful here. Um, we could talk about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights quilt project, mm. um, which was a collaborative global project I did with an artist called Stephanie Dunlop who lives in um, Phoenix, Arizona in the USA Uh, and we put a call out for craftivists via Instagram to uh, help us embroider the Universal Declaration of Human Rights Um, and the project, uh, we started it just after Donald Trump was inaugurated and it was this kind of very strange moment in time Um, and we found a lot of resonance within the craftivism and the craft community on Instagram. So instead of embroidering the 30 articles of the UDHR once, we ended up doing it uh, four times over. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we had 121 participants from 21 different countries around the world, uh, and each of them embroidered one of the articles, and they sent them all to me here in Melbourne, and I created um, four quilts with the help of some of the local um, participants that ended up uh, being purchased by the Museum of Australian Democracy in Canberra, which is in our old Parliament House, which is actually the building where Australia signed on to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So that was a nice little closing of the circle. Um, And then through the sale of that work, we were also able to raise $26,200 for um, the UN Refugee Support Agency, UNHCR. So a project like that operates on several different levels into how it is kind of effective effective change. At a very pragmatic level, it's about the fact that we were able to donate that money. At an awareness level, um, we were able to create a lot of content and raise a lot of discussions about the Human Rights Declaration um, and get a lot of people to engage with that document and those ideas um, in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have otherwise or you know, it wouldn't have come up in their Instagram feed necessarily. So we created a space for those kind of conversations. And on a very personal level, um, everyone who was involved in the making of the project, it was a very kind of personal and empowering experience um, for them on their own change-making journey. And it created a lot of other opportunities for them to go on and do other kind of projects in their own practices. So projects like that work on multiple different levels. 
Oh, certainly. Uh, and, and I'm glad you're mentioning that example, uh, not only because it so clearly uh, shows the power of craftivism from the single participant as, as being part of something bigger and to get to have those arenas or platforms you need to gather a lot of people. And and I think that was your method even earlier, before the pandemic situation, where you working from Australia and the US and, and all over the world. And it shows that social media is a strong tool for this movement, wouldn't you say? It's a really fantastic tool for engagement and, and yeah, and for collaboration. And it's very strongly integrated into my practice. And also, um, so the artist who is doing the COVID-19 quilt project with me is Kate Just. Um, she was also my PhD supervisor. That's how we got to know each other. So this is the first creative project that we're collaborating on together. Can you just describe the idea that you started off with? And uh, Because it collected a lot of people. So, so when did you start? <laughs> so we kind of came together and decided we wanted to create a space where our community, which is that craft community that we're a part of online could kind of share what they were already making and kind of connect with their experiences of COVID-19, which is why we started this project. Um, and unlike other, there are a lot of kind of COVID-19 court projects and some of them are digital and some of them are um, actually getting people to to create stuff and mail it to them to physically make a quilt like I did with the EDHR quilt. Um, but we're keeping ours a digital project because um, partially we just wanted people to share what they were already doing in um, as opposed to create more work <laughs> for people at this time. And um, with the COVID quilt project, the actual kind of stories that we're sharing with each post, which is in the um, maker's own words, are just as important as the visual aspect of what is being shared. Um, so it's it's kind of it's going to be this really amazing time capsule of how people were feeling in different parts of the world, uh, what they were worried about, what being socially isolated like brought up for them in their lives um so I think these kinds of projects are a really important way of kind of um remembering into the future uh the experiences and particularly experiences of people whose um thoughts uh and and experiences might not be recorded in other places so you know this uh project is largely women um And yeah, that's something that's really important to us is, is the fact that we're going to make sure that this project lives on into the future. Hmm. Certainly. And it's, it's, you, you're absolutely right because I think at the end, uh, there's, there's so many layers in, in a good project like that, because the effect could not only be measured through a community or, or a society, but also in within the, the own participants. And it goes both ways. I think you can both be strengthened in your own work, but as, as a being a stronger individual, you can also be a, a kind of a better force into society. So it's, it's a, a good uh, mixture, I think. How do you describe your own role or your own place in this different movement? Hmm. What role do I play? Uh, 
I guess through my research, I attempted to just add a small kind of amount of new ideas and new questions into the um, into the way that we think about this project. But as a practitioner, I think I try to just do more of the leading by example um, and and to share ideas and experiences and resources as much as I can. I think what I'm what I really get a lot out of is being able to empower other people who want to do um, good work um, by by sharing what it is that I've learned through the projects that I've been involved with. And even things like a, I created a, um, a little self-publication that I share freely with anyone who wants it called Craftivism, a manifesto methodology, which kind of distills a lot of what I learned from my PhD thesis into a little handbook that anyone could pick up and read. Um, so yeah, I guess I try to just kind of like share what I know and help people if they're interested in starting down this path. I think that that's a, a really generous way of doing it, just share the sharing part. And, and it also goes so uh, well to, with the DIY movement and, and the the connection that the the craftivism is having with the the whole uh, internet DIY sharing part of it. Totally, and I think the craft community is like really well versed in the sharing of information, particularly kind of if you compare it to um, more traditional fine arts practices, where people tend to be kind of very. Um, private or protective of their very specific processes or practices and always trying to do something new and different. I think in craft we're very good at um, at sharing and disseminating information and encouraging other people to, you know, we we replicate each other's patterns um, and, and there's that kind of, yeah, more DIY or DIT, do it together mentality. You mentioned your research earlier and, and you finished your PhD project, Craftivism as a DIY Citizenship, uh, where it shows how you are working both in theory and practice. Has that always been of interest to you? I definitely get a lot out of the kind of um, very theoretical, critical um, investigations you get to do at that level of academia and I think it really does value add particularly for something like craftivism which as a kind of creative um, practice is new in its most contemporary iteration and of course there is a very long and multicultural history of craft being used as part of activism um, but this that the craftivism um, scene which you know Betsy coined that term in 2003 if I'm not mistaken um, um, the way I kind of talked about it in my thesis was that it uh, really came about as a result of the integration of um, not just the physical crafting and activism but also the digital spaces um, and that's what kind of makes this um, latest iteration uh, unique so yeah, I, I think there's a lot of thinking that needs to be done to be done about the efficacy, about how to best ensure that um, the craftivism movements. I don't think there's a singular movement, but that it um, it is mindful of how to be how to 
be more intersectional and how to um, ensure that it's actually really inclusive. Um, So I think craftivism needs to be very reflexive in order to avoid um, some of those pitfalls. What is uh, the state of craftivism today, according to you, Tal? (laughs) The state of craftivism. (laughs) The the whole world is in such a weird state. It's very um, strange to think about. But I am encouraged by the level of consciousness raising that's happening right now, that's happening um, on the kind of spaces where the craftivism community thrives, like Facebook and Instagram and um, Twitter. There's a lot of kind of important and complex um, and uncomfortable conversations happening right now, uh, and I think that that is really useful do you see the increasing role or specific role that that the movement can have in the future i think the really important role that craftivism plays as part of like a broader um you know the broader activist space where we need lots of different people engaging in different ways with different issues at different levels of like power and government uh, I think it what it does is like bring into the fold uh, parts of the community and people who might otherwise not engage in activism um, what I love about it very specifically is that it puts the voices of women front and center just purely because of its materiality and because of the history and cultural associations we have with craft. Um, And I think there aren't many spaces that are um, so biased towards women. So I think that's actually something really powerful about it. Um, And I think that uh, the other thing that's really powerful about it is that it can be um, this kind of Trojan horse where you can actually – talk about issues that would otherwise not get discussed. Yeah, I love the image of the Trojan horse. Uh, It's a tricky way of saying something and letting your opinions be heard, but with a beautiful package and in a more clever way. Yeah, I like to think of it as like a kind and less confrontational way of starting those conversations in the hope, the hope is that, we won't trigger people's kind of defensive nature because so much of um, kind of political discourse these days is people shouting at each other or, you know, speaking at each other, knowing that the other person will never listen because they've already decided that they don't like what you have to say and doing it through um, through these kind of potentially gentle, soft um surprising ways will hopefully catch people off guard and and make them more open to listening to your point of view and and i think also that it's 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 proven results it's it's so effective i think it's a lot of lots of good examples out there that has actually shown that change is possible i strongly believe that it, this is a way of of getting clear results in in a positive way of changing people's minds. I think there are lots of reasons why um, 
people become disillusioned and disengaged from the process of politics and from um, the feeling that their voice counts, even in places where they still feel like their vote counts. Uh, And I think perhaps what's really powerful in the way that craftivism operates is that it physically makes material people's voices, their opinions, their their concerns, all the things that they're passionate about. It's a way to kind of like make very tangible um, what it is they're trying to say and and creating an object that can then be shared as a way to start those conversations. Um, and I think there's something to that. There's something about um, the physical manifestation of someone's ideas into something that isn't as uh, ephemeral as as the actual voice that makes it a powerful way to share ideas and concerns. I, I would like to talk about your art pieces. I, I love that you're having a big scale in your work. They are visual and bound to hang in a public uh, square or in a museum. Uh, is that a part of your artistic expression? Yeah, Yeah, I'm definitely like one of those people, like even my handwriting is too big. <laughs> I like <laughs> I like working at that scale. And that's something that um, I I kind of machine quilt and machine applique all my work. And I, uh, it lends itself a bit better to doing things at a larger scale. Can you tell me more about those works you did uh, just recently? So, um, so the project was called Signs for Our Times and it was... Uh, a project that I adapted from what was going to be like a series of workshops, public workshops. Um, and in, and uh, so I do a lot of textile protest banners as part of my practice and I've started to actually work with um, organisations to kind of create those. I think there's a really um, powerful potential for craftivists to um and for artists more broadly to kind of add value to the work that's being done by grassroots organizations um, and to bring creativity to their work. Hmm. And I think that that is really clever because they're both really beautiful and strong because of, because of the, uh, the different, um, uh, the opinions and the expressions of of them. And I, as, as you tell me now, as I understand it, they must be so much more powerful for, for the organization's, because the the message comes from from them. Yeah, exactly. And this is another this is a good example of what I was saying before where I really I'm not necessarily interested in like amplifying my own voice but in finding ways to work with others and um and use my limited amount of power and privilege and the platform that I have to kind of amplify the voices of people who are actually doing the very hard everyday groundwork of change making in communities. That's good to hear because I think we we certainly need strong voices and strong strong uh, um, projects like like the ones you're forming. Do you see dangers or challenges ahead that the craftivism community needs to tackle? I I don't know if I can think of anything that is specific only to craftivism. I think. Um, just more broadly as global citizens uh we have a lot to reckon with um n- not just a pandemic 
not just this kind of um, crisis of white supremacy that's coming to the front, but climate change, which is not going away, even though we feel like we don't have time for it anymore. Uh, And I think I think the the combination and the scale of those things have the danger of of making people completely shut down in hopelessness. And it's something that I struggle with personally. Like how do you hold on to hope in the face of a global pandemic, in the face of global systemic white supremacy, in the face of, uh, you know, climate change that we're constantly being told is, uh, at a tipping point, at a tipping point, at a tipping point. Um, so I think that's that's our real challenge is is to hold on to hope and to help spread hope. I think that's something that because craftivism is uniquely um, convivial, uniquely kind, um, uniquely material perhaps in the way that it approaches change-making, uh, it has the potential to really support people through those feelings of hopelessness towards a sense of greater empowerment and connection and um, and helping to move people from discussion to action, which I think is what is really important right now. Well, that's truly inspiring and I think it's it's been wonderful talking to you, Tal. It's, uh, it's my honour and I'm constantly humbled uh to be working as part of these kind of collective global projects and uh if i can do them you and all the listeners can do them it it's you know it seems big but they you just need a kind of idea that resonates with people and people want to be involved um in projects that inspire them and give them an opportunity to share their voice and give them an opportunity to connect with like-minded people. Yeah. And you can, can you still be part of the COVID-19 quilt? Yep. (laughs) We're we're keeping it rolling as long as the pandemic continues. Um, So we welcome anyone to submit. All you need to do is submit a square image uh, with a textile piece that you've created um, that relates to your experience of COVID-19. And along with that image, we share a couple of sentences um, from you about what it is. Um, And yeah, it's as easy as that. Thank you so much for this, Tal. It's been a huge pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the second episode of the Gorilla Craft podcast. I hope you have enjoyed it. Be sure to follow Tal on social media, Tal Fitzpatrick on Instagram and Facebook. And more information is also found on talfitzpatrick.com. The ongoing project COVID-19 Quilt is on Instagram. Check it out and participate. If you're interested in getting more knowledge about the term craftivism, check out the writings of Tal. Her Craftivism, a Manifesto Mythology is a great way to start. Or the writings Craftivism as DIY Citizenship, the Practice of Making Change. Also, for more information on the subject, please check out my first episode in this podcast where Betsy Greer is my guest. She is the one who coined the craft and activism term into craftivism. 
If you would like to get in contact with me, go to the Gorilla Craft podcast at Instagram and send me a message there. My hope is to start a digital journey around the world, exploring the craft that is visible in public, often used as protest or a way of communicating, or sometimes only as being there to create a smile. More episodes to come. Stay tuned.